Good morning, church. Welcome. You can go ahead and grab a seat this morning. My name is Johnny. I am the pastor of discipleship here. I'm losing my voice already. I got two more services. I spilled tea down the front of my shirt. Can you guys see that? that on the live stream, can you see that? Comment below. Um, uh, welcome. We, I have an announcement. Uh, Sneaky, Gary said four. We got five announcements this morning. I get to do one of them. Uh, as the pastor of discipleship, I oversee discipleship at Vintage. And we have this incredible vehicle for discipleship that's called Vintage Communities. And open enrollment for those starts today for the next three weeks. If you don't know what Vintage Communities are, those are like our version of small groups or discipleship groups or church groups or whatever you've called them at any other church you've been at, community groups, uh, we call them vintage communities. And our hope is that we get everybody meeting in homes around the city, uh, eating together and praying together and doing what we call the discipleship pathway, which is a two-year journey, doing six modules worth of what we think is the best content we could find uh, so that people can get together and do not just church on a Sunday, but do real life and have deep community and become more like Jesus we have six modules for that, one of which is serve on Alpha. Like, we really are committed. We're going to get you serving on Alpha at some point. It's the place to be. Um, so for vintage communities, we only have the, the, like, train is at the station for you to get on three times a year. In the fall, here in winter, and then one in the spring. So for the next three weeks, you can go on the website and either find or form a community to be in. We have 17 open communities listed on our website right now that you could go on and find. We have another like 60 that are closed because their living rooms got filled up. Um, and I would love to launch more. The reason we have 17 open communities is because 17 different people said, I'll host one. If we, I wish we had 100, but that would take 100 people going, I'll host one. So for you, you can go on the website and jump in or you and find a community, or you can go, hey, I could host, I could form one. Or maybe you even go, hey, I got a group of homies with me. Why don't we just do it together? And you could form one that way. Either way, go on the website. I'll send you to me and my team, Bradley and Dakota, and we will help get you plugged in, connected, and get discipled. Sound good? Lovely. Those are all my announcements. Uh, we're going to take an offering. If you are a guest here today, there is no obligation to give. Baskets are going to come around. You can just pass them along. But for those of us that consider this place our home uh, and our family, this is where we give back to the Lord and ask him to do wonderful things with our money in his kingdom. So I'm going to pray and then baskets are going to come around. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good to us and every good thing that we have in our lives comes from you. And so with thankfulness and full hearts, we give back into your kingdom and ask that you multiply it for your purposes. Pray this in your name. Amen. Men. Now, this is where I'm going to make things awkward because I'm going to make you stand up to read scripture as these baskets are going to come around, but you know, we'll make it work. So we're starting a series on the book of Exodus. You might know around you, you might have seen there is a Bible under somewhere or on the seat or in a basket in the courtyard or on the pews in the balcony, hopefully. Um, if you don't own a Bible, take it. That is a gift free for you. Please take it home. Um, if you have your own Bible, rock and roll, or you can pull up on your phone, either way. But we're going to stand up, and I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. As baskets are coming around, we're multitasking today. Um, so book of Exodus, you can go all the way to the left in your Bible. is Genesis and Exodus. And I'm going to read this for us, and you can follow along. Uh, 
Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You may go ahead and take a seat. Today, we are starting a series going through the book of Exodus. If you've never read it before or never seen The Prince of Egypt or Charlton Heston's like Ten Commandments, you have no frame of reference. Kind of goes a little bit something like this. Number one, there is God's created people, the Israelites. They are God's creation. They're at the beginning. They are then enslaved by the, uh, a tyrant king, uh, the Pharaoh at the time, enslaves them. Uh, they are led to freedom, to liberation by Moses, who's fulfilling the will of God. And then they travel through the wilderness, a new land where they learn what it means to be free. And so the story has a movement. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. Creation, a healthy group of people. Secondly, a tyrant king enslaves and kills them. Third, they're liberated by God through Moses. And then fourth, renewal, they learn a new way of life, no longer slaves, but the family of God. So why is this significant for us? Why would we read through this book and go through it over the next few weeks? Why would we start our year here? Because Exodus is the key for understanding the Jesus story because Exodus is the Jesus story. What happens in Exodus is what happens with Jesus. Northrop Fry, the literary critic, says, Exodus is the only thing that ever happens in the Bible. I don't think he even went far enough with that quote. You might even say, Exodus is the only thing that ever happens. When you know the story of Exodus, you begin to know the story of yourself because it is the story not just of Moses and the Israelites, but it's the story of Jesus and us. We are created by God. We have been enslaved by sin. We are liberated by Jesus, our rescuer, and we are called into a new way of living as the family of God. 
So Exodus for us is like the Rosetta Stone for the rest of Scripture. It is the story you need to know to decode all the significance woven into the rest of the Bible. And in fact, it is the story that you need to know to decode all the significance woven into the fabric of your own life, which is why we're starting the year with it. It's why we're going to take a few weeks to go through it, not verse by verse because it's 40 whole chapters, and that would take a couple years, but we're going to go through it over the next few weeks, and hopefully we'll find that there's a story about God and people that is captivating and true and reflects back to you a mirror of your life. We need to understand this book. So briefly and quickly, let's get an overview and a structure of it. What is the literal book of Exodus? So it's part of the Torah. It's the second book in the Torah, which is the five uh, first books in our Bible, which make up the five first books of the Hebrew scriptures. Those are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is number two of this kind of five-fold book. In Jewish tradition, Moses is the author of the book of Exodus and kind of the whole Torah, but it might have had a few other collaborators. It's not actually stated in the book of Exodus that he wrote it. And in the Torah, it's kind of clear that Moses didn't write all of it because there's a part that's written about how he died, which I don't know how he would pull that one off. This is historical narrative. This is the genre. This isn't characters and myth. It's one of my big pet peeves when people talk about Bible characters. Like, what do you, it's not a Disney movie over here. This is real people. This is told as the most historically significant event for an entire people group. The movement of the Israelites being called by Moses, exodusing out of Egypt and getting freedom, crossing the Red Sea, getting the Ten Commandments, going through this journey is the most significant event for the Jewish people. This is their Boston Tea Party, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution all rolled into one. And that's our story. And I can say that now because a few weeks ago, though I was born in England, a few weeks ago, after 16 years of living in these United States, I can say that I've become a citizen of this land. Uh, it's, a big, it's a big day for me. My family's still mad at me for it. Like, but when I, Boston T. Paul Revere, he's like a hero of mine now, you know? I, I used to hate that. What a snitch, you know? But now, now like, he's the guy. This is that level of significance for the, for the Jewish people, only it's 100 times more significant, more significant than any of those events or those documents, because this is the story of God coming down from heaven, calling a people group to be his, rescuing them, and then choosing to live with them and remain with them as he reveals a new way of living. Exodus, like I said, is 40 chapters. Chapters 1 through 4, you kind of get this beginning portion of the Israelite people enslaved under Pharaoh. You then get Exodus 5 through 15, which is the part that most of us know because that's the part they turn into movies, right? The, the 10 plagues, uh, the Red Sea, the like, let's get out of here moment, the big climactic narrative. 
Then we get in 16 through 18, this little mini section of the grumbling in the wilderness. When as soon as the people are freed, they're like, let's go back. Like, let's, we want to return to slavery. It's this insane part of the story, but it makes sense when you dig into it. Exodus 19 through 31. You get the covenant at Sinai. This is the part where Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments like engraved in the stone. Um, There's also this part of this part. If you ever, if you do read through the 40 chapters of Exodus, this is where you'll also find like the architectural blueprints and like the lookbook for like how to make a tabernacle, a tent where God will meet. If you read through it, it's, it's tough sledding that part. Like all the Bible's good, but some of it's hard. And reading chapter after chapter of the curtains should be this long and they should have 50 holes for 50 hooks and those 50 hooks should go along a pole that is this. I mean it's like a lot God bless Gary's going to preach on that part later in this series I'm just ca- calling it now if he's brave enough I don't know if he is you know if he's brave enough he'll do it Exodus 32 through 40 is the final section Israel's wilderness rebellion where in spite of everything that God has done for them, the freedom they've been bought, the, the journey they've been on, the miracles they've seen, the faithfulness of God, the provision of him, they turn their backs on him and reject him. And then the book kind of ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger of a freed people struggling to live free. That's the 10,000-foot snapshot. How does this story of the Israelites become the Jesus story? How does it become our story? If we go back to the beginning of Exodus, the passage that we read, if we look closely at the introduction of the narrative, we begin to see the link between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, which is the first important thing for us to understand. Exodus, as a narrative, is a direct sequel to Genesis. Both are historical narratives, but they're separated by about 400 years of mostly unrecorded history. So the author at the beginning, he catches us up on what has happened in those 400 years and brings us up to the present day and lets us know this is a sequel. Genesis ends with the same language that the author chooses to begin, Exodus. Genesis 46 and Exodus 1 create this bridge where we get this description of a genealogy, like a family tree. That's what Genesis 46 is. And then Exodus 1 that we read of Judah and Simeon and Ben and Naphtali, it's this genealogy of the family of Abraham leading up to Joseph and then leading up to now. What this tells us, with Exodus being a sequel to the book of Genesis, is fascinating because the Genesis story is very deliberately the story of all of mankind. It is the human story. Genesis starts with the creation of the whole world and all things are good, creation, and it tracks as that world becomes broken, enslavement, and it zooms in on this family, Abraham's family, which is Isaac's family, which is Jacob's family, which is Joseph's family, and we track with this family as God sets about on a plan to liberate and free them and lead them into a new way of life, and God does it through Abraham's family as a picture of what he wants to do for all of mankind. The story of Abraham's family in Genesis is the human story, and so is the book of Genesis. This theme he is leaned into, lent into, over and over in that portion of Exodus that we read. 
Exodus 1, verse 7, see this. It says this. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. That's Exodus 1, verse 7. Where have we heard that language before? We heard it in Genesis in the garden when God makes people and he says, be fruitful and multiply, go and fill the earth. And so the Exodus story, like the Genesis story, does not start with everything being bad. It starts with everything being good. A created people living fruitfully, in fact, abundantly so. Exodus 8, verse 10, uh, uh, Exodus 1, 8 through 10 says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Just like in the garden when everything is good, who should slither in but a different kind of ruler? The snake in the garden comes in to bring about a different way of life that will be like slavery and death. And the snake in the garden is described as being more cunning, crafty, or shrewd than any other animal. And here we have a king bringing about enslavement and death for a fruitful people coming in cunning, crafty, and shrewd. Exodus 1:14 says the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor or burdens in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in the book of Genesis, after the snake, after Adam and Eve eat from the fruit, after the fall, there are the consequences of sin laid out by God. And one of them is that now the man will work the ground by the sweat of his brow, fruitlessly pulling up thistles and weeds. And here we have the Israelite people fruitlessly working the ground because all their fruit goes into Pharaoh's storehouses, bitterly sweating under the burdens of their way of life that is now enforced upon them. If we were to go further, we would read all of Exodus chapter 1, The narrative takes an even harsher turn because Pharaoh commands death for the Israelite boys, the Hebrew boys that are born. A genocide of the babies is commanded by Pharaoh. Just as in Genesis, the curse, the consequence that is put on the woman is that she will labor her babies in pain. And then right after that, she sees her two sons and one of them dies at the hands of the other. And here we have these Hebrew women laboring in pain and watching their sons die. The Genesis story is the Exodus story. The human story is played out in Exodus. The author makes it clear This is the human experience happening again. We get in Exodus a literal retelling of the story of mankind that was told in Genesis. And so the Exodus story is for everyone, for all time. Yes, it happened to these people at this time, and for them it's their literal family history, their generational story. 
But for all of us, it is the image of the movement of the human experience. Creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. And that is what we see in the Jesus story too. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Toy Story 2. There's a moment in Toy Story 2 that without context is bizarre. Emperor Zerg, you, you guys know Toy Story 2? Emperor Zerg, right, he's fighting Buzz Lightyear, and there's this moment when, out of nowhere, Zerg says to Buzz, Buzz, I am your father. And then Buzz falls on his knees and yells out, No! And if you don't have the reference of that this is what happened in Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars Episode Five. if you don't know that, this is the craziest out of left field plot twist that is happening in this movie for no reason. But if you know the reference, you go, oh, that's funny. You know, and you get a little joke at the end of Toy Story 2. This is actually, I think, a lot of what happens for us in Scripture. If we know the references that are happening in the story, it opens up a whole new world for us. And if we miss the references, we don't always get the full picture of what's going on. The life of Jesus is full of reference points to earlier stories, most specifically the book of Exodus. The life of Jesus is recorded in detail in four different biographies that we have as the first four books of the New Testament. These are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of these accounts of Jesus' life make it very clear that what Jesus is doing is an eternal, all-encompassing version of the Exodus for all mankind. The Gospel accounts are full of both subtle and very not subtle references to Exodus. If we do not know the story, we will miss out on what Jesus is doing. Matthew in his gospel leans into this the hardest. He is like determined to make sure we don't miss the references. Matthew's gospel goes a little bit like this. See if you can see how this works. Matthew starts his account of Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 1 with a genealogy of how Jesus is connected all the way back to Abraham, just as the Exodus story starts with a genealogy of Abraham's family connecting it back to Genesis. Jesus' life, very clearly to Matthew, is the sequel to the Exodus story, which is the sequel to the human story. There's about 400 years between Genesis and Exodus. Jesus comes onto the scene after 400 years of silence from God between the Old Testament to what we then know as the New Testament era. The Jewish people, when Jesus shows up on the scene, are living under the under the oppressive rule of the Romans, just as the Israelites were living under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. Moses, when he was born, was hidden from Pharaoh by putting him in a basket. And Jesus was hidden from the king of his time, Herod, by hiding him in a stable, in a manger. A tyrannical despot, Herod, enacts a genocide against Jewish infants when Jesus is born, just as Pharaoh does to the Israelites. Jesus escapes the genocide by fleeing to Egypt, where as a Hebrew, he lives as an immigrant in Egypt, just as Moses grew up, an immigrant in a foreign land. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, then goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, 
Moses goes through the Red Sea and then leads the people in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes up onto a mountain and delivers a teaching. The, the Hebrew word for teaching is a Torah. He delivers a new Torah as the Sermon on the Mount, just as Moses goes up the mountain, the Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments and the Torah to give the people a new way of living. Jesus multiplies bread and fish to feed the multitudes in the desert, just as Moses asked God for bread from heaven to feed the people in the wilderness. The means by which the people are freed from Egypt is by the blood of lambs spread across the wooden posts of a doorway. Jesus makes a doorway to freedom for us by becoming a sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed. The story of Exodus lines up with Jesus' life and shows you what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing Exodus. Only this time it is not physical and temporary. It is spiritual and eternal. It is the bigger and greater and final retelling of the Exodus story. Jesus casts himself in the role of Moses, but he is a greater Moses. You and me are the people of Israel being liberated, but not from physical slavery, but bondage to sin. Our enemy that's being defeated is not Pharaoh. And to the disappointment of the Jewish people in Jesus' time, it wasn't Rome either. It was the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the renewal to new life is not a physical movement into a promised land, but entering into a new way of living in God's kingdom under his rule right now. So the Exodus story is our story. This is us, because the Exodus story points us to Jesus, and Jesus tells us in every detail of his life that he is doing a new Exodus for all people. For us now, that means how do we know that God is rescuing us? How do we know that the blood of Jesus will be enough to save us? How do we know that our enemies are defeated? How do we know that his way will be better? How do we know he's going to be faithful to us? How do we know that he's going to keep his promises to us? How do we know that he's going to be good to us? How do we know? Because he's done it before. He did it in Exodus, and he will do it for you. So we live in the light of the Exodus story, and now it's fuller retelling the Jesus story. The structure of Exodus is the structure of our lives, creation, enslavement, liberation, renewal. You were created by a good God for good things, to be fruitful. He delights in you and is completely wrapped up in love for you. You and me both have been enslaved to sin, to brokenness, to our selfish desires, our warped worldviews, our inability to rule this world in peace, in shalom. We are broken, messed up, and we are in need of rescuing. Through Jesus, we have our liberator and our rescuer. We are set free and our enemies are defeated, and we are set on a course with him to a whole new way of living where he renews us as we join him in the renewal of all things. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. 
It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that they may receive adoption as sons, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. Paul is clear in his allusion to the book of Exodus. It is a movement from slavery into freedom. Maybe the simplest way to sum up the whole story of Exodus and the human experience is it is the movement from slaves to sons and daughters. But that movement like the Israelites, is not something we actually find easy or natural. In Exodus, as soon as they are free, they want to go back. Exodus 15, verse 21, they're set free. They've plundered the entire land and are leaving with all the wealth of Egypt. And as they leave, they sing a song. And it's, they say, they sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Eight verses later. It would have been better if the Lord had just killed us in the land of Egypt. At least there we had plenty to eat. It's amazing what happens when you're hungry, how fast we can turn. I mean, if, that, if there is the example of sin, just being hungry goes evil, just comes out. The people struggle to live as people that are free because it is not what they know. We are the same. We are freed completely, but to learn to let God renew us and to live how he wants us to live is a struggle. We are sons and daughters, yet we turn back to our old ways as though still slaves. The Apostle Paul, almost referencing his own work, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, reminding them not to go back. In Romans 8.15, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as children. He is aware the, the primary position of the human heart is to want to turn back. He calls us forward. N.T. Wright, this is like the killer quote. He says, there are two liberation journeys in the book of Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery, and the second is to get slavery out of Israel. Tyler Staten, our friend, he'll be preaching part of this series later when he comes down. Um, he's a friend of Bridgetown in Portland. He says this, it takes a breakthrough moment to become objectively free, and it takes a lifetime of reformation to live a life that matches that freedom when all you've only known is bondage. So this is not just the story of slaves becoming sons and daughters. It's the story of a faithful God to an unfaithful people refusing to let them go back into slavery no matter how hard they try. This is our journey. I'll end with this. About a year and a half ago, my wife and I, we adopted a dog from the streets of Tijuana. 
this dog, we've got a little Mexican dog. She's beautiful. She's, she's, I don't have a picture because objectively she is the cutest dog. And I know that some of you wrongly think that your dog is the cutest dog. And I just didn't want to disappoint you by proving the point. So I'll just leave you with your, you know, false reality. So she's a beautiful dog. She's a, a golden retriever, German shepherd mix. So our house is covered in hair, which kind of is terrible, but... When we adopted her, she was about 10 months old and lived that entire time on the streets in Mexico. And so when we got her, she was emaciated, severely underweight, scared of everybody. Like if you walked close to her, she would either run away or if she felt like she couldn't run away, just collapse on the ground. Once she finally warmed up enough to let us close to her, discovered her entire body was covered with ticks, um, like hundreds. And so my wife and I had to lovingly like hold her to the ground and like comb through every inch of her hair with a little tool, you know, the, picking out tick by tick. And over time, she's learned to be part of our family, but she had an entire life for her on the streets with scarcity and lack, and fear, and brokenness, and leeches literally sucking the life out of her. And so she comes into our home where there is an abundance of food. There is three little kids willing to cuddle with her every single moment of her life. This is now the most spoiled dog. This dog got like intense like training. Like every single day we're out there, like a thousand repetitions of like teaching her new behavior. We have that she like has this beautiful dog crate that she sleeps in in a bed with pillows and it's soft. She has a home. She has a whole family that loves her. She is like spoiled beyond belief. Yet, like our community group will know, when they come over, she like runs and hides under the couch still because she still has this like, I'm unsure if I'm safe. She still has the any time we make food or leave it, you can't leave food on the counter. You can't leave food unattended because this dog lives with, I don't know where my next meal has come from, even though she's had two meals every single day without fail for a year and a half. Because although she's adopted and free and loved and fed and taken care of, she still has this old way that is so hard to slowly love out of her. I, I used to have this sermon series I preached to teenagers when I was a youth pastor. It's called Things I Learned About Jesus from My Dog. <laughs> There's a mini version of it for us. Our pain is deeper than my dog's. The brokenness we've experienced is much more than little Sundance experienced. I don't mean to trivialize our life by comparing it to a dog. Our lives are complex, full of pain, and an old way of living, and slavery to sin, and bondage, and fear, and worry, and scarcity, and hurt, and lack of trust. These are all things that are like woven into our past. But we're set free from it in a moment by Jesus. We are adopted into his family in a moment. What we have now is the renewal part of our journey. 
a lifetime of learning what it means to be free, what it means to be a son, what it means to be a daughter, what it means to be in the father's house, not Pharaoh's house. We have to throw away our old picture of living if it's based on the ideals, traditions, and methods of Egypt. We have to embrace a new way of living, a new Torah, a new instruction, a new family code that comes straight from the heart of God, a new way of living that is designed with our flourishing in mind, not our death. We don't return to Egypt, we don't return to slavery, but we pray over and over again, renew me. God, renew me. Renew my thinking, renew my way of living. It's the Exodus story, it is the Jesus story, it is our story. It is the story of a good father refusing to let us return to an old way of living. It is a good God committed to renewing you time after time until you know what it means to be his. Will you guys stand with me as we pray? We're gonna have a prayer team that comes to the front. They're gonna stand here. They would love to pray with you as we worship, to close our service, as we respond. They would love to pray with you about anything, but for right now, if you want, you can close your eyes, hold your hands out in front of you. This is a way of showing to God we're ready to receive, and we say, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and give us a vision of freedom? Would you come and give us a vision of what it means to be a son or daughter of the Most High, of a good God, of a loving Father? And so, Holy Spirit, we just submit our lives to you. Say, don't let me turn back to fear. Don't let me turn back to sin. Don't let me turn back to slavery. Don't let me turn back to Pharaoh's house. I want to live in God's house. I want to live in my father's house. I, just, I feel like there's maybe people in this room, you feel like I'm not welcome in the father's house. I don't fit this, the, the model of what you think a Christian's supposed to look like. That's okay, because God welcomes in everyone into his house. And in his house is when he teaches you how to be a son or a daughter. So Jesus, we just receive your welcome. We receive your greeting. And we say, God, you do what you want to do in our lives. Renew us in your name and by your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.